You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, there is a story in the Old Testament, and I'm not sure, probably many of you are familiar with it. It's the story where Nathan is coming to David to um, talk to him about the sin that's in his life. And the way that Nathan does it is actually through this powerful little story where he's trying to capture David's heart. And the story goes like this. It's, Nathan comes up and he says, hey, David, there's two men who have sheep. And he says, one is a king. And the king has tons of them. He's got like a whole hill full of them. You know, he's got all kinds of sheep and they're growing and he is just, he's rich and he's wealthy and he's got all kinds. But then Nathan says, there's another one. This is a poor man, and he's got very little, and all that he has is one little ewe, one little baby lamb. And David, or Nathan says, um, you know, the king is kind of unaware of how many he has, but this man, this poor man, is taking care of this little ewe lamb, and he's like feeding it and caring for it. And in the story, Nathan even says like he's, he's caring for it like it's one of his own daughters and he lets it eat even out of his own plate. Okay, maybe you do that with your dog or something, you know. It's like this thing is like a part of the family. They love this little lamb and he cares for it deeply. But then Nathan says, a stranger comes into the town and the king says, here's a stranger. I'm going to invite him into my house, and we're going to have a big party. And so we're going to have lamb for dinner. And so the king says, where should I get a lamb from? Now, the obvious answer would be, you've got tons in the hill there. Go grab one of your own. But actually in the story, Nathan says, the king goes to the, to the man, and he takes his you. He takes the poor man's you, and he slaughters it, and they have a big feast and a festival. And it Upon hearing that story, David loses it. Like David is just so angry with this rich man. And ultimately, that was the point of the story, that Nathan was trying to get David to see his own sin and what he had done. And the way, did he, the way that he did it was by telling this story. And it worked. It captured David's heart. When we come to Mark chapter 4 here, we can see that Mark begins by telling some parables here. And in most of the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, there's, there's a lot of parables that are told, and, and they're regularly looking at the teaching of Jesus. But in Mark, what we've seen is that what he's recorded for us is the actions, like the things that Jesus has done with his life and his ministry, and he's kind of captured that. But now here in chapter 4, Mark comes to a little section of parables where we get to get, we get a glimpse into Jesus' own teaching. And in the Gospels, parables are stories that tell a kingdom principle in an earthly setting. That is what parables are for. They help us understand uh, some kingdom values or some, some principles connected to the kingdom itself, but they give it to us in a context that is familiar to us. And so as we look at this parable this morning, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the purpose. Sorry, no, the parable itself. Then we're going to look at the purpose, and then we're going to look at the potential of it. Okay, so 
We just heard them. Matt just read uh, verses 1 through 20 and verses 1 through 9. But here we come in verses 1 through 9 to the parable itself. And listen, as a preacher or as a teacher, if you've ever done this before, or maybe you've just been a, a teacher before, we're always looking for some sort of stories, okay? That is like the life of a teacher and a preacher, desperate to somehow find some kind of story to um, essentially to get people to listen, okay? Because I know that, um, or I'm guessing that last night, you know, some people stayed up too late, maybe watching a movie or uh, a sports event or something, or maybe uh, some are just like less than enthralled about being here, even sitting in your seats. There's some sort of hindrance to you even listening to my voice, maybe. Like there's all kinds of, of barriers, right? And so a preacher and a teacher is always looking for ways to somehow capture people without being crazy about it, okay? And usually it's through stories. Well, guess what? Jesus was no different. And that's always encouraging for us teachers, right? Jesus was no different. Here we come to chapter 4, where the setting for Jesus has changed in terms of how he's teaching. He's not in the synagogue anymore. He's not just opening up a text and reading it and explaining, kind of like what I'm doing this morning. He is out with people. He is out on the hills. And what does he do? He tells parables. He tells stories. Now, why does he do that? William Barclay, in his commentary, gives four reasons why Jesus actually uses parables and stories. Okay, the first one is that they're interesting. Like, they're captivating. Just like that story about the ewe lamb, which maybe wasn't as captivating for you unless you're like a sheep herder or something. You're like, that's very, I get it, you know. But it was captivating for David, and it was captivating for Nathan to tell it. The same is the case with these parables. They're interesting. They get people... They get them feeling. They bring them into the story itself, and they kind of are drawn in to the lesson that Jesus is teaching. They were also familiar. They were used to hearing parables from other, you know, teachers, maybe in their towns. They were also used to hearing parables even in the Old Testament. They weren't like a brand new thing. They weren't a brand new teaching style. Jesus was using a, t a storytelling method that was really familiar to each of the listener. Thirdly, they were also helpful because remember, what the parable is trying to do is take a kingdom principle, take something that is abstract and make it concrete. So some sort of principle that's in the kingdom is brought then into a real life story, like our story this morning of the sower planting out in the field. We get that, but sometimes the abstract idea just goes right over our heads. And then lastly, they are compelling. They actually get people to think. And that was the goal with the parables, was that Jesus would tell these stories Jesus would draw these people in with these stories. And then they wouldn't just be captivated like it was a great movie. But the goal was that they would actually be compelled to think about, okay, what is this principle that this rabbi, that this teacher is teaching? And so Jesus used parables to do that. And so here's a lesson for us to learn 
in our modern day because really we have not changed as people. We still love to be captivated. We still love to feel and be drawn into the story. And so the, the lesson for us to learn and the, maybe the technique from Jesus is to learn to become good storytellers. Maybe not to tell parables about a ewe lamb. Maybe not to tell par- parables about farming. Maybe, maybe for some of you. But somehow become good storytellers. Now, if I would use the word um, witnessing, that maybe would like bring people into cold sweats already, right? It makes people a little bit nervous. Um, partially depends on your background and if it was something that you learned about or maybe that you did. Maybe it went well for you and so the, the term witnessing is a, a good term, but maybe you had a bad experience with it. Okay, but in essence, what we're talking about here is being a witness through the medium and through the power of storytelling. Being able to tell the story of the gospel and what God has actually done. Recently, I listened to a uh, church planter who was talking about his experience. He's an Italian church planter in Italy. Okay, so the Italian landscape is, is very... Um, It's an interesting one. It's very secular, and yet most Italians would say that they're Catholic, and the Catholic Church has a place in their life, you know, for baptisms or for funerals. It's almost like, he he described it as like a gas or electric company. You know, it's like a utility. It needs to be there, but nobody really cares that much about it. And so he said, this is the context of Italy. And so when you want to share your faith with people, it kind of comes with that utilitarian baggage. And so he said, if you come with any form of organized, like, Bible study or organized church-related event, man, people take a step back and they say, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. But then he went on to say, if you have a meal, or if you have someone over for a coffee, or maybe a cappuccino or something, you know, the Italian way, okay, and you have a discussion about God, or you have that maybe the same questions and answers that you would in a Bible study. But the fact that it is just not organized, it's around a meal, it is a hospitable event. Man, Italians are all over it. They are interested and want to be a part of that. And you know what that is? That is knowing our audience. That is knowing the field that we're actually in. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He knows the field that he's in. He knows that, okay, I'm out in the fields now talking to people. Parables is the way that I'm going to actually get them to think and feel and maybe wrestle with what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And we are called to do that as well. So we're called to tell our story in the context of the greatest story, which is the gospel. Being able to tell what God has done for us. In the book Center Church by Tim Keller, he actually quotes James Smith, who's another author. And James Smith writes this. Smith points out, Worldview formation happens not just through education and argument or mainly through politics. Rather, it derives from the narratives we embrace, especially those that give us a compelling picture of human flourishing and that captures our hearts and imaginations These narratives are presented to us not mainly in classrooms, but through stories that we absorb from various sources. 
So Smith is saying, listen, the thing that actually shapes your worldview, which is like the center of who you are and it's, it's the driving force for your life, the thing that shapes that is actually stories, compelling stories. It might be movies, it might be songs, there's all kinds of ways to learn stories, but what we've been given and what Jesus is doing here is through the medium of story, giving principles of the kingdom of God and communicating God's vision for the people who are there and listening. But the key to actually this first section of verses 1 through 9 is verse 9 itself. It says this, And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that's a pretty obvious statement, right? Because if you look around the room here, everybody's got ears, okay? So he who has ears to hear which is basically almost everybody on the planet, should hear the message. And again, almost everybody on the planet can actually hear. And so Jesus is saying this really um, totally obvious statement to bring another point to people's attention. And the point is this, that you can be listening to these parables even. You can hear Jesus' teaching. You can physically be present there. Your ears can physically be close to the proximity of his teaching and not actually hear what he's saying. And it's the same for us on any given day. We can be near to what God is doing. We can have, you know, his word in our hands and we can actually not be hearing. And so in verse 10, we come to this little... Um, this little bit in the middle. If you remember last week, we talked about the intercalation, the Markan sandwich. It's actually happening again here, right? Where you've got the first nine verses that tell the parable. And in the meat of this passage is actually these middle verses, 10 through 13. And then he comes back to the parable again to kind of explain it within that context. So what's happening here? is the purpose itself. Let's read verses 10 through 13 again. Verse 10 says this, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? Here we see that Jesus is actually saying this parable, and I think this is why Mark actually records it first in his gospel. This parable is actually like the key to understanding what's happening in the kingdom of God. This parable is actually the key to understanding Jesus' ministry. This parable is actually the key, disciples, those who are going to have it explained to them, this is the key that you need to understand when you're going out and you are telling others about this gospel, this kingdom message. The response that you will get only makes sense if you understand this parable here. And so Jesus says in verse 11 and at the end of 13 like the key to understanding the kingdom of God is understanding this parable so this parable is really important for us to understand as well to make sense of what Jesus is doing and to make sense of everything that's happening around him in his ministry and Jesus's primary role 
in this ministry is actually to reach out to the nation of Israel. You can see that a few times in the Gospels where he says, the, the real reason that I'm coming, the real reason that I'm teaching these things is I want to, to bring back this nation of Israel. The nation that had been formed by God himself to be people who would be marked by him and would also attract others to God himself. They were meant to be in relationship with God so that others could actually look at them and say, wow, that's what a people looks like who are in relationship with God. And yet as you read the Old Testament, you see this this pulling away from God. This regular pulling away from God where they are just rejecting him over and over and over again. And I recorded some verses at the end of the Old Testament that kind of give us a glimpse of where things are at with the nation of Israel. Zephaniah 3.1 says this, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. That's like the, that's where the nation of Israel is at, at the end of the Old Testament. But listen to Zechariah chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So even here, at the end of the Old Testament, God is trying to bring them back in relationship with him. We saw there in Zephaniah that they were rejecting. It was just the continual rejection of, of God and his works and, and of, of being a people that are dedicated to him. But God still, at the end, is trying to woo them. is trying to win them back so that they would be his people. And this is what Jesus is actually doing as he's teaching. He's trying to woo them. And even John the Baptist, so if you'll remember, he was there to try to prepare the way He's trying to bring the nation back in preparation for the Messiah. And now the Messiah is there in front of them and Jesus is still doing that work. But he says, man, there are still people who are rejecting me. They're doing exactly what their forefathers did in the Old Testament. They are pushing me away. And so he says, in essence, there are two groups of people here. There are those who are coming to me and then there are those who are on the outside. And he says, you need to Really, you need to understand this, that there are people on the inside and there are people on the outside. This continues on even in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God who is in Christ, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Paul here is almost telling a parable, right? He's using some imagery, like a perfume or a scented imagery, to get us to understand that there are some people, when they hear this teaching of the gospel, to them it smells beautiful and wonderful. They just like take it in. It's so amazing. But to others, 
It's like a smell of death. They don't want anything to do with it. And that's what Jesus says is happening in this parable. And when people are listening to his teaching on it, some people are not hearing it at all. They're on the outside and others are on the inside and they're actually asking questions and they're wanting to learn more and discover, okay, what does this actually mean? And that's what the disciples did. The disciples, he says, are on the inside, but they didn't actually understand the parable either. Right? We can see that in verse 10 and 11. They were the ones that were asking, but they were close. They were like, okay, I don't get this, Jesus, but I want to know more. Tell me more. And so we come to the third section here, which is the potential where Jesus actually explains the four types of soil. And so I just put them on slides here for us to, to look. The, the beauty of this passage is the interpretation is in the passage itself. So as we look at the first path, we see that it is, or the first type of soil, that it's the path. Now, some of us, those of us who are not into farming, which is most of us, I can see some who are into farming, when it comes to farming a field, we're thinking like modern day farming, right? Where maybe you've seen a tractor out there tilling the ground and getting it ready. And then we come in with uh, a seeder. Is that right, Brett? Uh, a, you know, a seeding thing. Okay, he knows all the titles. And we put the seed perfectly in the right spot on the whole field so like the whole ground is used efficiently. That's not how farming was done in the first century. Farming in the first century was basically you had this open piece of land. Maybe it would be as big as this sanctuary here. And it would be full of rocks. And it would have on the edges, it would have paths where your neighbors would walk to their fields, which would be right beside you. And then you would walk out as the farmer and you would have a bag. I was going to have it some seed here, but I thought it would make too big of a mess. But you would have a bag, okay, with seed, and you would take a handful, and you would sprinkle it like this, and you would just spread it out. And then you'd walk along the field, and you would sprinkle it, and you would sprinkle it, and sprinkle it. And then you come in after with some sort of a hoe or something, and you work the seed into the soil. I was able to actually see this when we were in Africa. That's still how they plant rice where we were in Africa. They just spread it out, and then cover it after. That is the context of farming and planting seed in the first century. And so Jesus now is trying to get them to understand the kingdom of God through that example. And he says this, the first seed lands on the path. And what is the path? It is hard ground, right? So in verse 4 he says, And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and they devoured it. In verse 15, where he explains it, he says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So Jesus says, there are some that when you spread the message, spread the word, it lands like hard concrete. It just bounces right off of it. And so it provides quick food for the birds. It is a heart that is hard to the word of God. It is a heart that is resistant to the word itself penetrating in. It's a heart that, it, a heart that if you want to access it, its nourishment, you, it's going to have to be broken up somehow. Something is going to end. I remember a story of missionaries who were in Afghanistan just after the war. 
10, 15 years ago. And these were some uh, single missionaries. These women were there working with other women. And man, they said, this ground, they described it like this, this ground is hard ground. And, and they described the work that they were going to be doing there. However many years they were there, I don't, I don't know, and I'm assuming they're not there now with the change that's happened. But they said, the work that we do here is just picking rocks and softening the soil. That's the only work that they could see that they would be doing because the ground was so hard. The second ground is this, the rocky ground. Verse 16 says this, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while And then when tribulation comes or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So this is one where ground is a little bit softened, seed goes into it, it quickly sprouts up, but it actually, when when difficulty and tribulation or persecution comes, it chokes out, it's gone. It can't handle it. The difficulty that maybe would have softened the ground in the rocky ground actually does the opposite here. When the difficulty comes and tribulation is brought, there's no life and it, they fall away and they disappear. This is the rocky ground. The third one is the thorny ground. And if there is ever one that described maybe my own heart at, at many times or maybe your own hearts, it would be the thorny soil says this, and others, verse 18 says, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. You know, sometimes the word of God is Um, I've talked to people who've said, man, this is just like an antiquated book. This is an old book. You know, it's from 2,000 years ago. Um, Old ideas. It doesn't like, it's not relevant for our modern times. And then I come to a verse like this and I think, this is a better description of our modern day than maybe anything else around. This describes so many of us who are caught by the cares of the world, who are drawn away by other things. And in the process, the word of God doesn't penetrate to the depth that it can. And the distractions and the chasing after things becomes greater than actually the word of God growing in our own hearts. Tony Dungy, I don't know if you've, any, any of you ever heard of the name Tony Dungy. He was a, a coach for the Indianapolis Colts and for many others. And, and he was a, he's a born-again believer. And he tells a story of the, the temptation by football players and those you know, coaches and everybody to be totally sucked into football as life. Like football being everything. And he says, that in the end will destroy you as well. Even if you're a professional, he says, it's going to destroy you as well. And his, his own coach, his head coach in the first year that he was a coach, which was Chuck Knoll, and he was a coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers, he said this in a staff meeting. He said, don't make football your life. Don't make football your life. 
And Tony Dungy at first was like confused by that because he's like, we're professional, we're the Pittsburgh Steelers, like this should be everything. But then he discovered that it was this same kind of mindset here, this choking, this kind of being drawn in another direction that is not the center or not the primary focus for you. And so Tony Dungy from then on for 28 years as a coach in different teams told that to his players every single year. You're a professional footballer, but don't make football your life. It will choke you out. Finally, we come to the good soil. The good soil. The good soil is this, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And I don't know about you, but Anybody planted a garden this year and had it grow really good or maybe not so good? I often plant gardens and they're not really that great, okay? They don't really grow that good. But the ones that grow really good are the ones that are in a pot that I fill with miracle grow soil. I don't know if you've done that, but maybe that's cheating, okay? I don't know. But you fill it with miracle grow soil, and it's just like this black soil, and you put in maybe like a tomato plant or something or some sort of herb, and they just go like crazy because it's all in the soil. The nutrients is in the soil, and that makes a massive difference. And here Jesus is saying, with the sower, it's the good soil where things actually grow in the kingdom of God. That is the place where things can happen, where growth can happen 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. But remember, God is abundant. God is lavish. And so when we see the sower, we actually see that he sows everywhere. God is not miserly. God is not just like, I'm only going to do it here. God is abundant and gracious, and he sows seed everywhere. And so we have here these four types of soil. And most Sundays, we don't have like four easy takeaways, but this Sunday, I want to leave you with four things to think about, okay? Because the, the passage is kind of self-explanatory in there. You get a commentary with the parable itself, so it's perfect, okay? But I want to leave you with four things here just really quickly to remind us as we leave here what this passage is actually trying to get us to think about. So four takeaways. And the first is this. Prepare your soil. Prepare your soil. These four types of soil are representative probably of all of us at different times in different seasons of our life. Just because we're sitting here, just because we're part of maybe a Christian family, that doesn't mean that we don't have the hard pathway soil. And so doing the work of preparation is key. Now remember this, the Holy Spirit does a work in the heart. He's working behind the scenes. Each Sunday, you know, we pray before the service, and that's one of the things that we pray for. We pray, God, would you prepare soil? Prepare soil in a way that we can't. But at the same time, we've been talking here almost every week about the habits of Scripture, the habit of prayer, and the habit of community. All of these things feed the good soil. They prepare the soil so that we can actually receive the seed. The second is this. Sow the seed. 
We are called now, in this parable, Jesus is the sower. We are called now, as God's people, to sow the seed, to liberally sow the seed, to go out with our neighbors and with our co-workers and to sow that seed. You know, the early church, the first two centuries of the church, after Christ was risen and went back to the Father, there was like no programs. There was no organized like ways for doing evangelism. It was God's people on fire in a relationship with him who knew the people in their neighborhoods and just sowed seed, sowed seed. And that grew the church by leaps and bounds. It just grew like crazy. So sow the seed. Number three, understand the ground. So as you do that seed sowing, some people may be intrigued by what you say. Some people may mock what you say. Some people maybe would be angry by what you say. I've, I've had conversations and I've had all those things. But this parable actually helps us understand that there's different types of soil out there and it's being received in different ways. So don't be discouraged. Keep sowing. God can do a work. God can soften a hard path. All we're called to do is sow, sow, sow. We just keep sowing. And God does the work. God is the one who does the growth. And then lastly, number four, we prepare for a harvest. We prepare for a harvest. Look at the growth here. 30, 60, or 100 times. Now, often we think, maybe our minds first go to just like people. Like maybe it's just going to mean like this church is going to feel like 30, 60, 100 times. And maybe that is it. But there's other ways that the kingdom of God actually grows. We see people willing to take new steps of faith. We see people willing to go through life through really hard circumstances and experience the presence of God in new ways. That is also the kingdom of God expanding. Us experiencing the reign and rule of Christ in new and significant ways. But remember this, and let let me just close with this. Remember that the harvest actually comes through one really important step. And that is actually through the step of death. The harvest comes through death. In John chapter 12, Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And that's why we celebrate Jesus on the cross. His death was that very thing. It was the the power of the kingdom unleashed. His death and his resurrection is all that we hang our hat on. That is the hope that we have as believers. Our death can only cover our own life. So we're like, we need something bigger than this. We need something that can cover those people that we're going to sow the seed among. And it's only the life of Christ himself. And so, like Paul said, we hang our hat on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he died, he rose from the dead, and his life now is the very thing that causes the 30, the 60, or the hundredfold growth as the seed is sown. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this parable. Thank you for this story of an amazing growth that can happen in the kingdom of God. 
And Lord, thank you for doing that work in our midst and for your power that can actually bring people to Christ and can grow us up in you so that, Lord, when we go through um, the deep valleys of our lives, um, the work of the kingdom is there and the growth continues, all because of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen.